All you need is love. Love, of course, is a many splendid thing. Love lifts us up where we belong. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. All you need is love. In 2017, when uh, my country, Australia, uh, voted to allow same-sex marriage, the Prime Minister declared, love wins. When a friend of mine left his wife some years ago, he said it was because of love. And I remember an interview that I'd seen uh, of a, a woman who killed her children. And she said, I did it out of love for them. In effect, because she was trying to keep them away from her estranged husband. All you need is love. And it looks like the Apostle Paul gets that. That Apostle who's so often regarded as a condemnatory, harsh, judgmental sort of character says to the Philippians in this passage, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. All you need is love, it seems. To abound more and more is to keep on abounding. It's not just to abound, and not even just to abound more, but to abound more and more. That is to sort of just keep growing as if it's exponential growth of love more and more, like wave upon wave of growing love, like a tide coming in. To abound deeper, higher, longer, wider, to endure more, to embrace more, to love more. All you need is love. But is that really true? You see, love actually is not all we need. And the Apostle Paul gets that because he says to abound more and more in your love with knowledge and discernment. You see, love, true love, Christian love, is not blind. It's not indiscriminate. The head and the heart are both involved. Love with knowledge and discernment. Paul doesn't define to whom this love is offered, whether it's love to God or to your neighbor. It's probably both because he doesn't limit it in his words. The knowledge he's referring to is not information so much as the relational knowledge of God. That when you know somebody in a relationship with them, you grow in their under, your understanding of them. And Paul is saying that your love may abound more and more with your knowledge in a relationship with God. And when you know a person well, like knowing God well, you begin to know more their priorities, their values, their desires, their character. And that's the discernment. That our love will be more and more attuned and aligned to the love of God for people and this world. And that's what he means here by knowledge, knowing God and discernment, discerning God's priorities and desires. So it's not the case that all you need is love. What we need is love with knowledge of God and discernment. And that's why love elsewhere is patient. Love is kind. Love isn't puffed up or fleeting. Our world's love is often fleeting. Our world's love is often boastful, selfish, unkind. 
But you see, discerning a knowledgeable love coming out of a relationship of knowing God will be patient and kind and following the, the, the character of God himself. It'll be discerning morally. So love that is knowledgeable and discerning will be loyal in marriage, faithful in marriage. It won't keep a record of wrongs. It'll be merciful and forgiving, but it won't ignore the wrongs either because it will love in truth. Love won't be satisfied with turning a blind eye to sin, but will love in truth and integrity. If love is discerning, it won't simply pretend that we're all one happy family, we're all the same. Love will be discerning of immorality because that's what God's love is like. Love that is knowledgeable and discerning will be like that. Now, Paul doesn't pray that for the Philippians simply so that they are bound in love with knowledge and discernment. He has, in fact, three, a sequence of three purposes in mind. And the first purpose at the beginning of verse 10, I pray this, that your love may be abounding with knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. The idea behind the word approve is to approve from testing. You test and get to know what is best in God's eyes. That's what's excellent. So using knowledge of God in a relationship with God, using discernment that grows out of that relationship and applying it to love will mean that we love what is best. We love what is excellent. We love what God loves. Later in this letter, in the last part of the letter, it's as if Paul comes back to this very theme. He says, finally, whatever is true, whatever is honourable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And what Paul is saying here is that all of those things, the good, the pure, the honourable, the excellent, Approve them. Approve them out of love is what he's saying. So that your love will be pure and holy and good and godly. Well, is our love like that? Does our love mean we approve what is excellent in God's eyes? You see, we often know what is good, but do we love what is good? We know that being faithful in marriage is a good thing. But do we love faithfulness in marriage? We know that generosity is a good thing. But do we love being generous? We know, of course, that corruption is a bad thing and not good. So do we love not being corrupt? An old hymn puts it this way, that I may love what thou dost love and do what thou wouldst do. But good behaviour, you see, doing what is right, is not simply about doing the right thing, but loving to do the right thing. And so as your love abounds more and more with discernment and knowledge, then we should be growing in our love of godliness, goodness and purity. The language of what is excellent 
also has the suggestion of what is the best, what matters the most, to God that is. It's how Paul uses the same expression in another letter. So love with knowledge and discernment gets what God's priorities are. It gets the big picture. It gets the big aim of what God wants for us, for those we love, for the church, and for this universe. For example, later in this same letter, in chapter 3, Paul speaks about the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. That's just one aspect of what is excellent. But it's one thing that Paul refers to later in the letter. Now, you may have seen last week in the first part of this chapter that God will complete the good work begun in us. But that does not mean we sit back and luxuriate in God working in us. Come on, God, do your thing. Let go and let God, as some put it. But rather here we are to abound in love with growing discernment and knowledge. Yes, God began a good work in us. Yes, God will complete the good work in us. But in between, we are to abound in love, discernment and knowledge, testing and proving what is excellent, what indeed is the best. But even that is not the ultimate goal of Paul's prayer. He prays that they abound in love with knowledge and discernment so that they may approve what is excellent, but that's not the end of it. Then it goes on in the next bit of verse 10, so that you may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. This is sort of stages here. The abounding love will lead to approving what is excellent. We already saw at the end of, the, of this letter in chapter 4, whatever is excellent is pure and good and godly and, and so on. And that's so that you may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. To be pure suggests something that's been purified. The idea of burning away in a crucible the impurities like a, a metal that's purified. And as I've said, what is most excellent is what God wants the most. And here we're being told that on the final day of Christ, we will be pure and blameless. Where I live in Melbourne uh, has a number of fruit trees. I don't do anything to them. We have, thankfully, volunteer gardeners. But I'm the only person living where I live uh, who uh, likes a particular fruit. I live in the same building as the Archbishop and his wife, and they do not like grapefruit. But I love grapefruit. And two years ago, the grapefruit tree was bursting with fruit. It was heavily laden with fruit. And I calculated that I may have eaten in that little season 150 grapefruit. Now, probably too many, really, for my digestive system, I felt, in the end. Being pure and blameless for the final day of Christ means, as Paul says at the beginning of verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness laden with the fruit of righteousness, like a, a tree heavy laden where the branches are bending under the weight of the fruit in its ripened maturity. That's how we are meant to be. When I saw that grapefruit tree that time, it was just yellow. The yellow dominated the green leaves. I didn't have to sort of peer through the branches seeing if there's a grapefruit there. 
And on that final day of Christ, Jesus is not going to look at us and sort of, you know, is there righteousness here? Can I find any? We will be filled with righteousness like a heavily laden fruit tree. It will stare us in the face. It will stare others in the face. It will stare Christ in the face as well. And our preparation for that day to be filled with the righteousness is via abounding love with knowledge and discernment. That we grow in our understanding and approving of what is excellent. And that leads us to preparation to be pure and blameless, filled with righteousness on the day of Christ. As we look forward to that day of Christ, are we longing for it with love? Are we longing to stand pure and blameless on that final day? Or do we rather enjoy flirting with the sins of the world? Is our love for each other and for others in the church, in our family or friendship, is our love for them longing that they will be pure and blameless on the day of Christ, filled with righteousness? Does our love for others seek their best to approve what is excellent for them, that is, that they will be pure and blameless before Christ? Is the fruit of righteousness ripening in your life? But even that final day is not Paul's ultimate purpose here. We might be surprised at that and think, well, the final day surely the end. Paul prays for abounding love with knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent, so that on the final day you will be pure and blameless, filled with righteousness, and so that all the praise and glory will go to God, as Paul says in verse 11 at the end. This week, I've been teaching uh, here in uh, Malaysia for STM, and one lunch had durian, delicious durian, actually, the king of fruit. But the fruit of righteousness, Paul says in this passage, is the king's fruit. It's Jesus' righteousness, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. That is, on the final day, when we stand laden with righteousness, it is Christ's righteousness. The God who began a good work in us and will complete it on the day of Christ completes it with Christ's righteousness. And that's why the glory goes to God. On the plane here, I read a brand new, uh, marvellous Malaysian novel, one that I've been waiting for, in fact, for two or three years to be published. I was excited to hold it in my hands when it first came out in Melbourne. The day it came out, I got a copy and I savoured it on the flight here. It's a great work, a beautiful novel. But at the end of reading the novel, I didn't hold it in my hand and say, what a beautiful novel you are. What a glorious book you are. I sent my praise to the author, whom I happen to know. 
The book is The House of Doors, Tan Tuaneng's third novel set in Penang in the 1920s. He's a glorious writer. And so I messaged him because he's the author. It's not the book's beauty that matters so much as it's the author's creation. What a great work you've done, I said. And so it will be on the final day. As we stand laden with the fruit of Christ's righteousness, purity and blamelessness evident, it's God's work. It's Christ's righteousness. And the work that God began, God will complete. We may be standing dripping with the fruit of Christ's righteousness, with love abounding, unrestrained, full of discernment, with our pores pouring forth purity, with our bodies beaming with blamelessness, and we will praise God. And we'll see each other and we won't say, wow, what a great job you've done. We'll say, praise God, the author of the great job you've become. For you and I will be his masterpieces on the final day of Christ. Because he's completed us, laden with the righteousness of Christ. Not my achievement, not your achievement, but God's. And that's why Paul says the ultimate goal is the glory and praise of God. Note in this passage that Paul does not command abounding love. He doesn't say, you Philippians must abound in your love. But he prays for it. He tells them he's praying for it to encourage them. But Paul prays for it. Because the abounding love with knowledge and discernment that leads to approving what is excellent, that leads to purity, blamelessness, and filled with the righteousness of Christ, it's God's work. That's why he prays rather than commands. It's God's work from the beginning to the end. Paul prayed for the Philippians this prayer. Have you ever prayed this prayer for your church friends, for yourself, for fellow Christians? Praying for each other, praying for yourself as you look in the mirror that you may abound in love with knowledge and discernment so that you approve what is excellent, so that on the final day you'll be pure and blameless, filled with the righteousness of Christ. Paul's prayer should propel us to pray and should propel us to love. Our collect for today began, Lord, you have taught us that all our doings without love are nothing worth Send your Holy Spirit and pour into our hearts that most excellent gift of love. Amen.